and the book of Lamentations. Why do you never read the book of Lamentations? That's easy. Because Lamentations is the most downright depressing book in the entire Bible. It is five chapters of destruction and weeping. It is a funeral dirge. No one wakes up in the morning, grabs their cup of coffee, and says to themselves, Time to do my morning devotions. I think I'll go to Lamentations. No one does that. Except uh, maybe the character Sadness from the movie Inside Out. Um, You guys uh, uh, hopefully have seen that movie. Sadness is voiced by Phyllis from The Office. And she is the typification of the, the, uh, the emotion sadness. She would get up and say, Let's read Lamentations again. But she is the only one. By a show of hands, just out of curiosity, how many of you in the last year have done your devotions from the book of Lamentations? One? All right. I'm proud of you, buddy. Uh, How about two years? In the last two years, have you done your devotions from the book of Lamentations? Still just one. All right, perfect. Here's the thing. If you haven't, you are missing out. Because, yes, Lamentations is the saddest book in the Bible. But it also connects us to a deeper hope than we ever thought possible. It displays for us a practice that connects us to God in a visceral, guttural, tangible way. Have any of you ever experienced shame in your life? I want to show you that lament is a wonderful antidote to shame. And that even in the midst of your darkest hour, the light of the love of God shines brighter than ever before. So, what is lament? Well, though he didn't exactly intend to, Russell Moore gives us a beautiful picture of lament in his book, Adopted for Life, in which he tells the story of how he and his wife Maria traveled to the Soviet Union to an orphanage to adopt their two sons. So, this is an excerpt from Uh, his book, Adopted for Life. He says, The creepiest sound I have ever heard was nothing at all. My wife Maria and I stood in the hallway of an orphanage somewhere in the Soviet Union. On the first of our two trips required for our petition to adopt, orphanage staff led us down a hallway to greet the two one-year-olds we hoped would become our sons. The horror wasn't the squalor and the stench, although we at times stifled the urge to vomit and weep. The horror was the quiet of it all. The place was more silent than a funeral home by night. I stopped and I pulled on Maria's elbow. Why is it so quiet? This place is filled with babies. Both of us compared the stillness with the buzz and punctuated squeals that came from our church nursery back home. Here, if we listen carefully enough, we could hear babies rocking themselves back and forth, the crib slats gently bumping against the walls. These children did not cry because infants eventually learn to stop crying if no one ever responds to their calls for food, for comfort, for love. No one ever responded to these children 
So they stopped. The silence continued as we entered the boy's room. Little Sergei, who is now Timothy, smiled at us, dancing up and down while holding the side of his crib. Little Maxim, now Benjamin, stood straight at attention, regal and czar-like, but neither boy made a sound. We read them books filled with words they couldn't understand, about saying goodnight to the moon and cows jumping over the same. But there were no cries, no squeals, no groans. Every day we left at the appointed time in the same way we had entered, in silence. On the last day of the trip, Maria and I arrived at the moment we had dreaded since the minute we received our adoption referral. We had to tell the boys goodbye, as by law we had to return to the United States and wait for the legal paperwork to be completed before returning to pick them up for good. After hugging and kissing them, we walked out into the quiet hallway as Maria shook with tears. And that's when we heard the scream. Little Maxim fell back in his crib and let out a guttural yell. It seemed he knew, maybe for the first time, that he would be heard. On some primal level, he knew he had a father and mother now. I will never forget how the hairs on my arms stood up as I heard the yell. I was struck, maybe for the first time, by the force of the Abba cry passages in the New Testament, ones I had memorized in vacation Bible school, and I was surprised by how little I had gotten it until now. Little Maxim's scream changed everything, more, I think, than the judge's verdict and the notarized paperwork. It was in the moment, in his recognizing that he would be heard, that he went from being an orphan to being a son. It was also the moment I became a father. In fact, if not in law. In this section of Moore's book, he's illustrating the passages in Scripture that refer to calling God our Abba Father. But it also powerfully illustrates for us the concept of lament. Lament is a mournful cry to a father that we know is listening. A father that we believe will pick us up and comfort us. It is more than merely a prayer. It is a sobbing of the soul, a howling of the heart. But it is not hopeless grieving. It is, paradoxically, an assured breakdown. Because it is both viscerally sad and yet convinced that this cry does not fall on deaf ears. It is the crying of a child that knows his parents love him even as he endures some type of tragedy. Like my one-year-old daughter, Gigi, who cries when she is strapped in her high chair, and she, by the uh, fear of God, drops her bottle, melting in tears and saying, Dad, lament, cries, but knows that mom and dad will save the day. And so in this series, we're going to examine lament from a few different angles. Hopefully we can start by learning what lament is in the first place. Then we'll learn why it is important. And we'll see a few things. We'll see why we must lament over our sin and its effects. Similarly, why we must lament over the sins of others. We'll see how and why we lament over the pain that is in our lives and the pain that is in other people's lives, joining them in their pain and inviting them to join us in ours. 
and why we lament the unresolved brokenness in our world. And most of all, what I hope that we see is that in the midst of our lament, the Father is listening, and He is coming to pick us up. So, turning your Bibles to Lamentations chapter 1. Beginning in verse 1, it says, How lonely sits the city that was full of people. How like a widow she has become. She who was great among the nations. She who was a princess among the provinces has become a slave. She weeps bitterly in the night with tears on her cheeks. Among all her lovers, she has none to comfort her. All her friends have dealt treacherously with her. They have become her enemies. Judah has gone into exile because of affliction and hard servitude. She dwells now among the nations, but finds no resting place. Her pursuers have all overtaken her in the midst of her distress. The roads to Zion mourn, for none come to the festival. All her gates are desolate, her priests groan, her virgins have been afflicted, and she suffers bitterly. Her foes have become the head, her enemies prosper, because the Lord has afflicted her for the multitude of her transgressions. Her children have gone away, captives before the foe. From the daughter of Zion, all her majesty has departed. Her princes have become like deer that find no pasture. They fled without strength before the pursuer. Jerusalem remembers in the days of her affliction and wandering all the precious things that were hers from days of old. When her people fell in the hand of the foe and there was no one to help her, Her foes gloated over her. They mocked at her downfall. Jerusalem sinned grievously. Therefore, she became filthy. All who honored her despise her, for they have seen her nakedness. She herself groans and turns her face away. Her uncleanness was in her skirts. She she took no thought of her future. Therefore, her fall is terrible. She has no comforter. O Lord, behold my affliction, for the enemy has triumphed. The enemy has stretched out his hands over all her precious things, for she has seen the nations enter her sanctuary, those whom you forbade to enter your congregation. All her people groan as they search for bread. They trade their treasures for food to revive their strength. Look, O Lord, and see, for I am despised. Is it nothing to you, all you who pass by? Look and see if there is any sorrow like my sorrow, which was brought upon me, which the Lord inflicted on the day of his fierce anger. From on high he sent fire, into my bones he made it descend. He spread a net for my feet, he turned me back, he has left me stunned, faint, all the day long. My transgressions were bound into a yoke, by his hand they were fastened together, they were set upon my neck. He caused my strength to fail. The Lord gave me into the hands of those whom I cannot withstand. The Lord rejected all my mighty men in my midst. He summoned an assembly against me to crush my young men. The Lord has trodden as in a winepress the virgin daughter of Judah. For these things I weep. My eyes flow with tears. For a comforter is far from me, one to revive my spirit. My children are desolate, for the enemy has prevailed. Zion stretches out her hands, but there is none to comfort her. The Lord has commanded against Jacob that his neighbors should be his foes. Jerusalem has become a filthy thing among them. The Lord 
is in the right. For I have rebelled against his word. But hear all you peoples and see my suffering. My young women and my young men have gone into captivity. I called to my lovers, but they deceived me. My priests and my elders perished in the city while they sought food to revive their strength. Look, O Lord, for I am in distress. My stomach churns, my heart is wrung within me because I have been very rebellious. In the street the sword bereaves, in the house it is like death. They heard my groaning, yet there is no one to comfort me. All my enemies have heard of my trouble. They are glad that you've done it. You have brought the day you announced. Now let them be as I am. Let all their evil doing come before you and deal with them as you have dealt with me because of all my transgressions. For my groans are many and my heart is faint. Did that bless you or what? (laughs) The word lamentations directly translates from the Hebrew as how. How. It is an expression of sad wonder. It is the first word in chapter 1, chapter 2, and chapter 4. Chapter 1, verse 1, how lonely sits the city. Chapter 2, verse 1, how the Lord in his anger has set the daughter of Zion under a cloud. Chapter 4, verse 1, how the gold has grown dim, how the pure gold is changed. It is a guttural cry, how? It is a wide-mouthed wonder, a a shaking of the head, an expression of painful recognition at just how badly things have become. The author of this book is the prophet Jeremiah. And he's writing this book as an expression of grief during the destruction of Jerusalem during the Babylonian conquest. This is something that we've talked about in in this church before a number of times. Jeremiah was a prophet, um, in addition to being a bullfrog, in the 5 to 600s BC, during which uh, Israel was enduring some of its most difficult times. During Jeremiah's ministry, Babylon invaded Jerusalem and enslaved thousands of Jews. And the Babylonian exile is where we have stories like Daniel and Rakshak and Benny um, and, uh, and all that. So then Babylon came back again and ransacked Jerusalem and destroyed the temple and left the city in absolute ruins. And so over the course of a 40-year ministry, Jeremiah was squaring off against false teachers He was squaring off against faithless leaders of the people who were refusing to listen to his counsel. And so Jeremiah is referred to as the weeping prophet because in his books he mourns the sins of his people. And he vividly describes the broken heart of God over the decisions of Israel. And so he writes this book from a vantage point on the hill overlooking Jerusalem. And and this Babylonian siege, this is a siege that would take months. It is a months-long siege because Jerusalem was a city with strong fortified walls. So that means that even though for a, a long period of time Babylon was kept out, that means inside the people were closed off to outside resources. 
And before long, they would run out of food. And you'll see references to this several times uh, throughout the book. Jeremiah, according to tradition, wrote this lament from a vantage point on what would one day be known as the hill of Golgotha, which we know from the New Testament. It overlooks the city. And so, here from Golgotha, he looks upon this once proud and beautiful city, now laid to waste. Smoke rising from the wreckage. The happy crowds now replaced with a a few zombie-like remnants, stumbling through the broken streets. And most significantly, the house of God lies in ruins. And so there, from the mountain, Jeremiah wept. In the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the following words are put as an introduction at the beginning of verse 1. The Septuagint reads, And it came to pass, after Israel had been carried away captive, and Jerusalem was become desolate, that Jeremiah sat weeping, and he lamented with this lamentation over Jerusalem. Never in the history of Israel had the people experienced such a catastrophe. This is the low point in the nation's history. And so here in chapter 1, Jeremiah personifies the city by calling her Lady Zion, or the daughter of Zion. And Lady Zion weeps because she has been destroyed, because her people have been enslaved, her mighty men have been killed, and the promises of God seem further away than they ever have before as the city lays in waste. Now significantly, Jeremiah points to sin, as the root cause of the destruction that he is witnessing. And that's important. We see this in several verses. Uh, For example, verse 5. Verse 5, he says, Her foes have become the head, her enemies prosper, because the Lord has afflicted her for the multitude of her transgressions. Again, in verse 8, Jerusalem sinned grievously, therefore she became filthy. Then verse 12, Is it nothing to you all who pass by? Look and see if there is any sorrow like my sorrow, which was brought upon me, which the Lord inflicted on his fierce day of anger. Verse 14. My transgressions were bound into a yoke. All of these verses, among others, point to sin as being the cause for the destruction that is laying before him. Now, This is something we're going to come back to a number of times, but I want to say here at the beginning, not everything that you suffer is directly because of a sin that you committed. It is not a uh, one plus one equals two formula that's that simple every time, like karma, okay? God does not operate by karma, okay? It, It is not as if every time you sin, there is a corresponding suffering, but sometimes when you sin, it does bring suffering, And it is important to lament that properly. And so, the book of Lamentations is five chapters. It is written as a poem. Five stanzas of a poem. And four of the five chapters are acrostics in the Hebrew language. That means that every verse begins with the next letter of the Hebrew alphabet. 
uh, from beginning to the end. 22 uh, letters in the Hebrew alphabet. And so, in the first two chapters, there are 22 verses. In chapter 4, there are two verses per stanza. And so this is a highly ordered poem. Though what he is writing seems chaotic and all over the place, it is highly ordered. Scholars say that metaphorically, Jeremiah is laying out suffering, A to Z. So, what does this mean for us? How do we apply this? How how do we derive meaning from this for today? What does this have to do with my sin? We'll get there. But first, we have to start with Jesus. Okay, so if you're taking notes, here's point number one. Jesus lamented over sin, even as he redeemed it. Jesus lamented over sin, even as he redeemed it. I think it's important that we start this series with Jesus, because sometimes it's going to get heavy, and we need this hope to lean upon. It is also important that we start here, because we need to set a very firm foundation for the heart of God as it relates to our sin. So many of us view God as a tyrannical judge, and he is up in heaven waiting for the right moment to just lay the hammer down. We fear him in the wrong type of ways, believing that if he sees us, he will destroy us. But that's not true. That is not his heart. We need to see that he is fully just, which means that he does absolutely punish sin. He does not sweep sin under the rug. He punishes sin, and the punishment is appropriate. But we need to understand that the heart of God is to punish like a parent, not like a tyrant. Scripture tells us that he is slow to anger and abounding in love. And it is only when we firmly decide to reject his grace entirely that we experience what it means to be his enemy. But as a father who loves his children, God punishes our sin with appropriate consequences and then gives us loving and gracious restoration. There are a number of parents here, a number of parents who are watching, a number of parents who will be listening to this podcast later on, and all of us punish our kids, right? It's not something that we derive any pleasure from. I don't find it fun to punish my kids. I would prefer that they obey so that I don't have to punish them at all. (laughs) I'm looking at Eli right now. (laughs) But sometimes you have to punish. But that punishment comes from a place of love and is followed by restoration and grace. And it's important that we start there because the last thing I want is for you to take away from everything that's said tonight is the idea that your sin makes you unloved or unlovable. The last thing I want is for you to walk out of here carrying a crippling weight of shame. My hope is the opposite. That you will have a freedom from shame unlike you have ever had. And so we have to start with Jesus' lament and with God's response. And what I want you to see is that Lamentations is a foreshadowing of Jesus. This is a historical archetype. 
because from the same vantage point that Jeremiah wept over the sin of Jerusalem, Jesus also wept over the sin of Jerusalem. According to commentators, they cite on Golgotha a cave called Jeremiah's Grotto. And this cave, known as Jeremiah's Grotto, comprises part of the face of the skull. Golgotha, we know, is the place of the skull. Uh, that's what the, the, the word Golgotha means. Because as you look at the cliff, with the three clay, the caves that are there in the cliff, they take the appearance of a skull. And one of those caves is called Jeremiah's Grotto. He says it's interesting that from these caves there on the site of Golgotha, you have a tremendous view of the city of Jerusalem. For Golgotha is actually the top of what was once Mount Moriah. And it looks down over the city of Jerusalem. Tradition declares that Jeremiah sat in this grotto when he wrote the book of Lamentations. And there he wept and cried over the desolation of the city of Jerusalem as he saw its ruins and saw the walls destroyed and saw the buildings leveled. And from that vantage point, he wrote this book. So here we have Jeremiah in Jeremiah's grotto in one of these caves overlooking the city and the sin that has led to its physical destruction. That, my friends, is a foreshadowing to later on when Jesus on the hill of Golgotha would also weep over the sin of the people that would lead to their spiritual destruction. When we look at the Passion Week, days before he died, in Matthew 23, 37, Jesus is standing on the Mount of Olives, looking out over Jerusalem, and he says this, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, killing the prophets and stoning those who are sent to you, How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, but you would not. This is a lament of Jesus spoken over the people as he looks over the city from the Mount of Olives. Days later, Jesus finds himself in the same place that Jeremiah was on the hill of Golgotha, this time on a cross overlooking the city from the same vantage point. And what does Jesus do there on the cross? He laments. He cries out, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. He laments, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This was an agonizing cry. But he cried that cry because he knew that God would hear. That the father would pick him up. Remember those kids in the orphanage that we talked about. They learned to stop crying because they knew that no one was listening. They found that no matter how much they cried, no one would respond. And so they stopped crying. They learned that they were on their own entirely. No one would comfort them, so they stayed silent. Contrast that with my daughter, Gigi. When Gigi cries, she knows that someone is going to pick her up. She doesn't know when, and and, you know, because she's a baby, she doesn't understand things, and so she has no uh, concept of time. And so when I set her in her crib to take a nap, sometimes she cries like she's being abandoned in a field somewhere. But she knows that at some point, someone is going to come to her aid. And so she cries. 
The same is true with the lament of Jesus on the cross. Yes, it is a guttural, visceral, painful cry. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But at the end of his lamenting, at the end of his cries, Jesus speaks his last words, and those words are, into your hands I commit my spirit. The work at this point is done, and the Father picks him up. The lament of Jesus gives us a model to follow as we lament our own sin and the sins of others. So with that in mind, with that as our foundation, with the lament of Christ before us, we go back to lamentations. Here's point number two. Sin produces destruction, but lament leads to healing. Sin produces destruction, but lament leads to healing. As I said earlier, not everything that you suffer is because of something that you did. There are many reasons why we suffer, and that is one of them. Again, God does not work by karma. But when you sin, sometimes that brings suffering. And we have to lament our sin in a proper way. And the point of this is not to make you feel ashamed because of your sin. Lament is a way to be free from shame. Shame, the the way that it works is shame takes the weight of sin and it binds it around your neck. It weighs you down and it keeps you under it. The enemy takes shame and pours it on you. He tempts you into sin and then he makes you feel terrible for giving in to that temptation. And he tells you all of these things about your lack of worth and your lack of value. You are defined by this decision. But lament, lament takes the weight of sin and pours it out with tears at the foot of the cross. Shame says, look at how bad I am because of what I've done. Lament says, look at what my sin has done even as I remember who I am. Look at what my sin has done even as I remember the truth of who I am in him. If we look at verse 18, it is clear that the Lord is in the right. Verse 18 says, The Lord is in the right, for I have rebelled against his word. But hear all you peoples and see my suffering. My young women and my young men have gone into captivity. Jeremiah is very honest here. Again, we, we pointed at several places where he talks about the sin of the people. He he directly points to the sin that has led to this judgment. And he says, I hate what's going on. I see the destruction of what is going on, but at the same time, I still recognize that the Lord is in the right. At this point, it has been generations. Remember, Jeremiah had a ministry that spanned 40 years. And so it has been years and years and years where he's been telling people, warning people, and and the people have false prophets, which we're going to see next week in uh, chapter 2. There's a verse in chapter 2, verse 14, that says, Your prophets have seen for you false and deceptive visions. So he knows that the people have been leading, uh, that, that the people have been led astray by false teachers, and he's been trying to warn them. 
And they've been continuing to sin and sin and sin again. And so he says, the Lord is in the right. Yes, the Lord is slow to anger, but the Lord is also just. And the Lord punishes sin. And when that punishment comes, we have one of two responses. To drive into the shadows or to come into the light. Lament aims to draw us into the light. Look at verse 19. Verse 19 is one of the key verses to understanding this in the passage. Verse 19 says, I called to my lovers, but they deceived me. My priest and my elders perished in the city while they sought food to revive their strength. This is so important because sin makes us promises, right? It promises to give us the life that we always wanted. It it promises to make our dreams come true. It promises to take all the pain away. It promises to satisfy us and fulfill us. It promises to bring us lasting pleasure. And so what do we do? We chase the carrot. That carrot that says, if you do this, and if you keep doing this, and if you keep doing this, and you keep going further and further, eventually it's going to make you happy. So keep rebelling, keep sinning, keep going, and we chase the carrot, and we keep chasing the carrot, and we run further and further and further away from what is good and right and true and holy. And then there comes a time, finally, at some point, where we come to. We wake up, and and the scales come off our eyes, and we find ourselves in a desolate wasteland of our own making. We see the effects of our decisions. We see the results of our choices. And here in verse 19 it says, we call out to our lovers those sinful carrots that we've been chasing. But they deceived me. We find out that we have been deceived. That verse is so sad but it's exactly what it's supposed to be this is a lament over what i have lost because of what i have done and it is a prayer cried out to god in honesty and in agony now let's read that verse in conjunction with the next verse Verse 20 says, Look, O Lord, for I am in distress. My stomach churns. My heart is wrung within me because I have been very rebellious. In the street, the sword bereaves. In the house, it is like death. We have to take those verses and read them together because this is what it looks like to realize that your actions have damaged you and those around you. Lament cries out to God, I know that I have rebelled. I see the death that I have caused. Please turn your eyes to me. Please look upon my pain. Please sustain me. Please breathe life into me. Please listen to me because I do not want you to miss this. This here is the key difference between lament and shame. 
lament and shame look very similar on the outside because both are in despair. Both are crying. But one of them brings that pain to God and the other hides from him. You want to see what that looks like? Genesis chapter 3. I didn't put this in the thing, Eli, so don't worry about it. Genesis chapter 3. Uh, specifically in verses 8 and 9. At this point, Adam and Eve have just committed the first sin. They have brought desolation to a once perfect place. And that's exactly what Jeremiah is lamenting about Jerusalem, okay? Jerusalem was once beautiful. Zion was once the holy habitation of God. In Lamentations 2.15, he says, All who pass along the way clap their hands at you. They hiss and wag their heads at the daughter of Jerusalem. Is this the city that was once called the perfection of beauty, the joy of all the earth? So, this is an unmistakable parallel between Lamentations and Genesis. Jerusalem is this beautiful, joyful habitation, and it is ruined by sin. Eden is the literal perfection of beauty, the most joyous habitation, and it is ruined by sin. And so what do Adam and Eve do? Verses 8 and 9 of, of Genesis 3, it says, And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. Adam and Eve hide. They they duck into the bushes. They, They bury themselves under the brush, hoping that God will not see them. God, of course, knows where they are, right? There's no hope of hiding from God. It's like when when my son and I would play hide-and-seek when he was about two years old, and he would just stick his head under a chair, and the rest of his body is sticking out, but he believed as a boy that I could not find him because he could not see me. And so I play along for a few minutes. Eli, where are you? And I can see him right there. And God says, "Where, where are you? Where are you? And Adam says, I was afraid of you seeing me completely exposed. I was afraid to show myself. I was afraid to be in your presence like this. And so I hid. And then God asks Adam what he's done. And what does Adam do? He he blame shifts. It wasn't me. It's her. It's this woman you gave me. And then what does Eve do? It wasn't me. It was this serpent that you made. Blame shifting. You know what blame shifting is? Blame shifting is another form of hiding. The focus won't be on me if it's on her. I'll be out of the, the, the line of sight if it's that way. Look away from me. Look at her. That's hiding. That's a form of hiding. It isn't my fault, it's someone else's. It is an effort to escape. So in Genesis, we have a city 
destroyed by sin. And the sinners hide from God and attempt to blame their sin on someone else. In Lamentations, we have a city destroyed by sin and the sinners cry out to God, but this time they own their culpability. That is the difference between shame and lament. Yes, lament is absolutely sad. Lament is in anguish. It is in agony. It is soaked in tears. Yes, it puts on sackcloth and ashes and it weeps. Verse 16, he says, For these things I weep, my eyes flow with tears. Verse 2, he says, She weeps bitterly in the night with tears on her cheeks. Verse 12, he says, Look and see if there is any sorrow like my sorrow. In verses 20 and 22, he says, I am in distress. My stomach churns. My heart is wrong within me. My groans are many. My heart is faint. Lament is, in its essence, anguish. But unlike shame... Lament does not hide from God. Lament falls on its face before him and cries to him. It humbles itself before God. It acknowledges its own fault. It recognizes its sinful choices and it weeps. It weeps at seeing the result But it weeps to God, knowing that God hears, knowing that God sees, knowing that God still loves. And we see that in Genesis. We see this in Genesis. When when we look at this whole story in Genesis chapter 3, we find that Adam and Eve have sinned grievously. We are all in the position that we're in because of what they did. Thanks a lot, Adam and Eve, right? They ruined it for everyone. You could not have a worse decision. And just punishments are doled out. Deserved punishments are doled out. There is desolation and there is destruction and there is exile, just like we see in Lamentations. But there's something in Genesis 3 that we cannot miss. And that is God, even after what they have done, even after they've ruined it all, even after that, we have God lovingly seeking his children. Even in their sin. Even as they hide in the bushes. And then, later on, God punishes their sin, but even in the midst of punishing their sin, he also offers them salvation. And he offers them here in Genesis 3 the promise of a Savior that is going to rescue mankind. And so he seeks them and he finds them in their nakedness and he does what? He clothes them. It says, The Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. In this clothing of them, he is not just covering their bodies, he is covering them spiritually. He is covering their naked bodies and he is covering their broken souls. Here, he is setting the stage for Jesus. Lament knows this. 
Lament holds fast to this truth, even as it sheds bitter tears over the effects of its choices. And so what we find about lament is point number three. Lament is a key component of repentance. Lament is a key component of repentance. I want us to read Lamentations verse one, uh, chapter 1, verse 20 once more. Lamentations 1.20 says, Look, O Lord, for I am in distress. My stomach churns, my heart is wrung within me, because I have been very rebellious. In the street the sword bereaves, in the house it is like death. In the midst of sin, in the midst of sin that has led to tremendous destruction, Okay, sin that has led to the raising of the city. Sin that has led to exile. Sin that has led to families being broken apart. Sin that has led literally to death. The words to the Lord are to look upon me. That is very different from hiding away from him. This verse shows us what lament leading to repentance looks like. When we do something wrong, and, and you can think about this in your own mind as I'm describing this, and, and I promise you, you feel the same way as me. When we do something wrong, especially when it's something really bad, we want to make it go away, right? And, and we probably feel really bad about the results, but maybe not so bad about the thing itself that we've done, and this is especially true with addictive behaviors. We are still very drawn to the vice, whatever it is. We just hate the mess that it creates. And so we may promise to never do it again so that the people that we've hurt will still have hope and they'll move past our transgression. We want to smooth things over as quickly and as painlessly as possible. Or, or we might try to minimize our sin. We, we might try to say, well, you know, it's not as bad as it seems. And, and look, other people are way worse, okay? So, yeah, maybe what I did was bad, but come on, it's not, it's not that bad. It's not, it's not as bad as that guy. And so we'll gloss over it, both outwardly to others and, and, and inwardly to ourselves, convincing ourselves that it's not a big deal. Or, or maybe we will cry about what we've done, Because it hurts to hurt people, especially those that we loved. And what we feel is this tremendous weight of shame, right? We feel ashamed, and that shame is incredibly uncomfortable. But eventually the tears dry, and the resolve to be different fades away, and we go back to that destructive vice. Why? I would think in part because we never lamented. There's a verse in the New Testament, 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10, that talks about repentance. And it juxtaposes two forms of what it calls grief. Godly grief and worldly grief. And, and, and one is good and the other is bad. 2 Corinthians 7, 10 says this, 
For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. Godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. Now, let's read that verse, but in in this instance, substitute in the two verses that we've been talking about, lament and and shame. Let's, Let's replace godly grief with lament and worldly grief with shame. And if we do that, now the verse says this, for lament, godly grief, for lament produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas shame produces death. Remember, lament and shame are both crying very real tears. Both make you feel terrible about what you've done. But lament drives you toward God. Shame drives you deeper and deeper into the bushes. Lament, what we see here in in, in Lamentations, lament looks fully at the wreckage bravely at the wreckage and it writes a poem about it. It writes a poem about it and weeps it up into God's ears, begging him to give life in return. Shame, on the other hand, shields itself from looking at the damage because to look at it is too much for us to bear. Shame numbs itself with something. Shame hides to keep from being exposed. It it avoids God as he calls out our names because we know that we're naked and the last thing that we want is to be seen. Lament sees and accepts the gravity of its culpability and it welcomes God into the wreckage. That is why Lament leads to salvation without regret. That is why lament produces repentance, because it doesn't avoid the damage. It fully examines it. It feels the effects of it. It opens itself to the truth of it. It makes itself vulnerable and seen in the light It allows itself to be changed by the damage. Shame just tries to avoid the damage altogether and medicate itself somehow with something. So it's only a matter of time before the medication wears off and you're right back to where you were before. I don't know about you, but I have been there so, so many times. Feeling terrible, terrible about what I've done but knowing that it's only a matter of time before I do it again. And so I withdraw myself into myself more and more each time, burying myself deeper into the bushes, hiding from the voice of God calling out to me. I was not free from sin until I was fully exposed. Like Adam in the garden, fully seen in the light, removed from the shadows, And there I begin to learn what it means to lament my sin. To look at it fully. To see its effects. And and rather than jumping back into hiding, welcoming God into the wreckage. 
the same will be true for you. If we are going to be right with God and right with others, if we're going to be free from sin and free from bondage, if we're going to be walking in righteousness, we must learn to lament. The voice of shame sounds like this. Shame says, I'm trash. I'm worthless. I am garbage. Shame says, it is my fault that I am unlovable and I'm unworthy of love and so I must drive myself into isolation, away from God and away from others because I do not want them to see me for who I really am. Those are lies. Those are lies from the pits of hell. And they will keep you in bondage. Lament, on the other hand. Lament says, I have rebelled. And I am looking at the damage right in the eyes. I am weeping over the effects of my choices and I'm begging God and I'm begging others to join me in my lament. I'm trusting God to rebuild what has been broken because I know that despite it all, he still loves me. He still loves me and offers me hope and peace and freedom. He still waits with open arms like the father in the story of the prodigal son. He still runs to greet me if I will come home. And he will put the best clothes on my back and he will put his ring on my finger and he will slaughter the fattened calf because the prodigal is home and he still calls me son. Russell and Maria Moore went back to that orphanage and they adopted those two boys. And in doing so, they gave them new names. They gave them a permanent home and they gave them a life of love where every cry would be heard where they would never sit in their rooms by themselves, weeping, and no one comes to comfort them. Where they would learn, when I cry, mom and dad hear me. So I can cry. I have the freedom to weep. I have the freedom to lament. I have the freedom to rip open my soul and pour out its pain because I know that on the other side of the door, mom and dad hear me and they love me. God offers the same to us. He offers us adoption if we would but cry out to him. He offers us freedom. He offers us new life. He offers us a way to come out of the shadows, to be fully known, fully seen, and yet fully loved. And he answers the deepest fears of our hearts. Will you begin the process of learning to lament and in doing so be set free i pray that you will let's pray god god i come before you 